for just about everything for the outdoors. Go to MidwayUSA.com. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. I'm Erica Lynn, and we all know the ocean is the most demanding environment on Earth, consistently testing the reliability and durability of our equipment. When you spend as much time fishing as I do, you know that reliable gear is essential for staying on the water. This is why I went with Abyss Battery to power my trolling motor, electronics, and outboard. The guys at Abyss Battery are rattling the saltwater industry by manufacturing performance marine batteries specifically designed for sonar, outboards, trolling motors, and electronic fishing reels. They're also Bluetooth compatible, so I found Checking battery statuses right on your phone while you're out on the water is a huge game changer. To learn more about why Abyss batteries are used by the pros and factory installed by Premier Boat Builders, visit abyssbattery.com. And here it is, another Friday, like I say every week, and another coffee call, episode 53 to be exact. And today we figured we'd talk about some relative content, which, you know, we're in mid-March, so a lot of people are starting to do prescribed fires and frost seeding. So what do you think about that? I, I think it'd be kind of cool to touch on the uh, both of those because frost seeding, I'm going to do it here tomorrow and get my stuff frost seeded, but prescribed fires... I've never done one in Michigan, but I've done them out of state in different areas. Not a lot of them, but I know you can attest to prescribed fires just because you've done quite a few of them. Yeah, I mean, I've, I guess I've done enough to, to feel comfortable doing them. Um, I, I wouldn't say I've done a multitude of them, but um, it is, it's a different experience. I mean, it can be scary for sure. You just got to know that that you have the control, and you need to be able to recognize when you don't have control anymore. That's the biggest thing like to, to keep in mind. Um, just just knowing what out of control looks like and what to do after that happens, if it happens. Yeah, it's got a lot of benefit to it. Uh, it's one of the most time-effective ways to, to clear a large section of property, um, especially when it comes to burning grasses, whether they be uh, natives or, or otherwise undesirables like a canary grass or switchgrass or something. Um, you know, all that stuff is laying there dead after the winter. And what you're trying to do is, is light that fire and, and do that burn while there's still enough moisture in the soil and in the surrounding timber to protect it all while the grass is kind of in that drying out phase of the spring before anything else germinates. Right. And like you said, you know, you're just trying to get rid of all that stuff that you don't need. And for you to go out, if you have like Let's say, I don't know, let's just throw a number out there. Let's say you have 15, 20 acres that you want to burn or whatever it is, and you want to get rid of those grasses. It's going to play hell on your, you know, equipment to get out there. If you have a tractor and a disc to try to disc it up, it's going to take you forever to do that. Go back over and over and over, you know, and you're really not, when you do that, you're really not killing it all the way either. 
you know, from, from my experience. So controlled burn is a really good way to, to take a, a big piece of acres and get it done quick and burn it, you know, and kill it a lot more than you would if you had to put a lot more work and effort. So honestly, it's kind of a, in a way, it's kind of a lazy man's way to, you know, prep the ground that you want to essentially possibly grow, you know, more grass, or if you want to do a food plot, or, you know, if you want to do any of those sorts of things to make your habitat better. Yeah. And another benefit it has is it, it adds a little bit of the, the nutrients back to the soil that exist in that organic matter. Um, you know, it's not anything strong, like, like clover where it puts nitrogen back in, but, you know, just kind of composting that, that ash and that organic matter, you know, it's going to richen up that, that top layer of your soil. If it happens to be a food plot location, obviously that's in your favor. Um, but like, like we mentioned earlier, if, if it's just a big track of land or, you know, a substantial piece of, of property that, you know, you're not going to go in and till up or disc up, uh, you, it can be done in a day. Um, the biggest thing is, is just to, to have a plan, you know, and have enough hands and enough people on deck to, to keep the perimeters under containment. And I mean, we use, we did Jared Mills farm last year and he had never burned before it got, I'm not going to say it got out of control because nothing ever happened. Um, but I mean, Jared was very nervous once it started because there was only five of us out there and it, it wasn't near enough people. Um, some of the tools that we, that we had with us, or that anybody should have with them for that matter, uh, is obviously like a backpack sprayer. Um, or if even if you have a larger spray tank, like anything from 50 to 200 gallons, you know, in the back of a, a UTV or even a pickup, um, something, some portable water that so you can move around quickly um, on a four-wheeler and a UTV and a pickup. Um, leaf blowers. Leaf blowers are super handy. Um, those work awesome in helping get the fire going and, you know, keep it moving in the right direction, but you can also actually stop the fire with them too. Um, another thing we had on hand were obviously like shovels and rakes, um, you know, and it, it may, it may seem counterintuitive, but when you do these burns, what you want to do is start on the downwind side. Um, you do not want that wind to carry the flame, you know, through your entire section or, your uh, your planned out burn area. You want to start on the downwind side, not on the upwind side, because that that flame is going to follow the fuel. So you want the smoke to carry the wind away, but you want the flame to work into the area you have designated to burn. So it's you may think it's the opposite if you haven't done it before, if you don't know much about it. Um, again, it's just the fire is going to follow the fuel. Right, and then a couple other things to think about too is also. Make sure you have some fire breaks, and there's a couple different ways to do that. Um, and the the only ways that I've really done it is, you know, if you're burning towards, let's say, a stand of timber that you don't want burnt, you know, if you don't want the fire to go in there, what we've done in the past is actually took a, a tractor and a, and a tiller, rototiller, and actually tilled up a couple passes along the along the woods there so the fire wouldn't jump it or the fire would stop right there. Yep. Another way is if you have, you know, a road, or you know a dirt road or a, a paved road if you're going to burn towards there the the fire should stop at the road as well so think about fire breaks and uh, i don't know have you ever done any back burning around things you know to like keep the fire away from 
you know, let's say maybe a tree that you don't want burnt or a blind. You know, a lot of times you have blinds still out there and, you know, CRP fields and all that. Yeah, for sure. Have you ever burnt around blinds to, to kind of keep the fire away? Yeah, I mean, you absolutely do that. Um, anytime you're in a position where you need to protect something, whether it's like, you know, your property line, your neighbors, uh, maybe it's your tree stand or uh, a permanent box blind you've got set up or, you know, even like a, I don't know, some old junk car that's out in the dingweeds, you know, parked in the back 40. I don't know. Um, you know, you, you want all hands on deck for that. And the way I look at it is like like when you're painting a room, you know, you cut in. You do your edges first. You go around the windows. You do your door jam. Then you come back and you, you go through with the roller. Same thing, you know, the same kind of principle here is you go to those those spots that require extra attention. And, you know, you wet everything down right against that, that tree or against that um, you know, that building or whatever you're trying to protect. And then you burn again into the wind. You start on that building and you force the fire away from it or, or around that tree or around your blind or, or whatever the case may be. And you just do enough of an area, you know, in, you know, the circumference around that, around that structure. And from there you're, you're safe. Yeah. And like Justin said, have a plan. Yeah. When you go into this, have a plan. And if you're going to have a lot of people helping you, or you should anyway, it's good to print off aerial maps as well and kind of draw it out for everybody so they can see the plan, you know, from above. So everybody's on the same page. Have a plan. Don't freak out. Because I will yeah. tell you, like you said, Jared was freaking out. The first burn I ever did, I freaked out. And so the fire was going towards this road, but it was going down in the ditch and then it was kind of going along a, a ditch going towards a house, but there was what I didn't know at the time. There was already a fire break down there that was made, and I didn't know that. So I'm freaking out. I'm over there with, like, a shovel and a rake trying to pat this stuff down, and yeah. it's just it does no good to freak out because it when you freak out, then your thoughts and everything just goes haywire, and then you really freak out, and you don't want to do that because you got to get this fire under control if need be. Because a fire, once it gets going and you can't stop it, good luck. Yeah, I mean, you're, it's just like any panic situation. You obviously want to do as much as possible to avoid that. You just keep your composure and stay focused at the task at hand and just just know what's going on all the time and like what you have to do in order to maintain that control. Um, you know, there's you mentioned fire breaks earlier, and that's – that's that's one way to physically stop the fire by creating a barrier. But when it comes to to controlling it, not even controlling, but just to stopping a fire, um, there's three elements, and it's it's often referred to as the fire triangle. And those three elements are fuel, heat, and oxygen. So obviously, the fuel is the material that's going to burn. The heat that's emitted by the flame is going to preheat the the fuel, you know, and essentially dry it out before the flame even gets to it. So it's in prime shape to be burned. And then oxygen is just like you would see, like if you put a, I don't know, like a cup over a candle or something, or if you could like snuff out a flame, you know, you, you take away one of those elements and the fire is going to go out. It has to have all three pieces in order for the flame to burn. So if you remove right. the fuel, the heat or the oxygen, you're going to stop it. So like 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 what you were saying is in in putting those brakes in, you're removing the fuel, or you're, you're removing the fuel from its path. So I mean it could jump the path if it's not big enough, or the wind could carry it over. But I mean there's no way to take away oxygen when you're dealing with a forest fire. 
or a, not even a forest fire, just even a, a controlled burn like we're talking about. But you can't really take the heat away either. So, I mean, the fuel is the only thing you have to work with. And obviously you want to you want to avoid burning in places that have a lot of fuel already on the ground, like in the timber. You don't want to burn through timber. Um, you know, when there's a lot of slash on the ground, like tree limbs or, you know, especially this time of year where you go out there, even in your yard, you see like all these, these twigs broken off from the snow melt, snowfall, and um, that's called fuel loading. And you want to just, you want to avoid the places that are loaded up with fuel. And that's why you see a lot of people in the Midwest and even like up by you, that are just primarily burning grass. So yeah, basically in closing, I would just say, like I said before, have a plan, have enough hands, like you said, have enough hands to help you and make sure you th- keep everything under control. And it's just a great tool in your management plan to to keep that habitat flourishing and uh, you know keep things going in the right direction that you want your farm to, to go. Right. Let's do a little transition here and put a bow on the controlled burn for right now and let's flip over to frost seeding frost seeding is something a lot of people are doing right now i'm going to do mine tomorrow and uh i just think it's a a really good way to be able to you know rejuvenate your your plot from the year before possibly you know if you have a lot of bare spots in your food plot from you know the year before that didn't really come up this is a good time to to throw some more seed down and get that stuff to germinate because the thaw, the thaw right now in the ground, you know, it's got that, that heaving basically. So when you go out and look at the ground, it, it's kind of popped up. Well, when you put your seed down on the ground, when that starts unthawing or thawing out, that, you know, lays the soil over your seed and you get a good germination bed. But let's transition to this and, and kind of get into this. What was When's the last time you did some frost seeding? I know you've been hunting some public land, so probably not going to be doing any this year, but... Um, I know you've done a few frost seeding. So what what's your uh what is your experience with frost seeding? Oh man, it's <laughs> my experience with frost seeding is one that I don't want to relive. But I'll start by saying <laughs> that uh, mainly because I went through an entire 1500 acre farm and frost seeded man, I bet you 400 acres of it on a four-wheeler. <laughs> Holy cow. It, it was terrible and it was relentless and it was, it destroyed my back. <laughs> it hurt at the <laughs> end of it and it took a month doing it every day. That's unbelievable. So what was your whole plan of attack and, and how'd you go about doing it? Uh, so what we, what we had was, um, we had a bunch of, we had loggers on this particular farm for the whole winter. Like once the ground froze, they were in there cutting trees, um, so we had a lot of really nice roads that were cleaned up and, you know, groomed at the end of the winter going into the spring. So we had a nice way to get through the farm. But what we did was went into the places that they logged and we would frost seed um, a bedding, like a cover type. Uh, it, was a, it was a mixture of grasses and some forbs and, you know, some broadleaf stuff like um, like chicory. Um, a little bit of feed mixed in with those those tall, thick grasses that grow super quick. Um, basically, we were just looking into the parts of the property, like I said, where they had logged because dragging the trees out, you know, the skitters in and out of the timber, you know, you've got a really a really good seed bed exposed. you got soil, you got leaf litter that's kind of raked off, and there's no rhyme or reason or like, there's no there's no outline or structure to the different areas that this, that this was happening in 
I mean, there was based on the trees that the loggers were harvesting, but as far as, you know, the formal layout of these particular bedding areas that we were creating, it was just a matter of where you could get the four-wheeler into and, you know, get the seed broadcast. Um, so we were just we were just going through and trying to put seed down in the areas where, obviously, trees had been harvested, the soil had been exposed, the leaf litter was removed, and, you know, with those trees being removed, we had an open canopy, lots of direct sunlight, soil temperature was up, soil moisture was was obviously ideal because it was a frost seeding scenario and um, in all 400 acres we had suitable fawning habitat by the time those fawns were born from the time that was seeded in March until late May early June we had grass uh, thick enough and tall enough you know to provide really great cover for fawns and, and nursing does and I mean just it's a it's a bedding area forever it's not just for fawns. It was just, by the fall, that stuff was six feet tall. It was amazing. So what your guys' plan was when you went in there after the clear cut or the select cutting, what you were doing is, you know, before all that rejuvenation of, you know, the the new growth as far as trees come up and before it gets really thick, you went in there and broadcasted some seed to make the bedding even that much better and cover. Yes. Yeah, they would they would leave obviously the treetops in there, so you have kind of that that effect of a hinge cut more or less. Like you've got that that dense brush in there, but we were just utilizing the fact that the leaf the leaf litter was you know was kind of loosened up. It was scratched away from when the skidder would haul the logs out, and like I said, it was it opened up the canopy, and as soon as that soil temperature rose to germination. You know, to the ideal germination temperature, um, all the moisture was there, had good seed-to-soil contact because of the loggers and, you know, their, their traffic in the timber. Um, it was, they were cutting for, uh, um, it was a select cut. You know, they were targeting, like, cherries and oaks and maples and just your, your typical hardwood. Uh, I, I'm I'm not very well-versed in my, my forestry terminology here, but... Uh, it was a select cut, I guess you could call call it that. Yeah, and so there's a couple different ways to be able to frost seed. So one is is doing what you were doing, and that's creating cover and bedding, and you threw a little bit of food in there. So yep. they also have some forage. Now what I'm going to do is I'm going to go into the one acre tomorrow, and last year I had thrown some clover down, and you know I did it in a, sp- a specific way to be able to – I did it all in one day. What I'm saying is is – what I did was I went in there and kind of cleared out the area with a rake as far as the, any of the debris or anything, leaves, sticks, stuff like that. So then I went in and I sprayed it with glyphosate right then, okay? So I sprayed the area that I wanted to spray. And this was kind of like I was trying to do a, you know, I was really trying to just work on something and do something I've never done before to see if it would to work. So I, I glyphosate, you know, sprayed it with Roundup basically. And then right after I sprayed it, I went in there and broadcasted clover because I didn't want to go back in there. I just wanted to make one trip in there and see what happened. So my, my thought was when all those grasses and everything die, they're going to you know, come down on the the seed and, and going to make for a good seed bed on my clover because clover, you can, you know, clover will live pretty well on the top of, you know, soil for a while. The seed's pretty, pretty strong. And, and 
as long as you get a good enough seed to soil in my in my in my experiences that clover is going to take right off so my thoughts were let that stuff fall down on the seed make for a good seed bed and the clover will come up and it did it came up pretty well and I was really happy with it because I didn't know if the glyphosate was going to kill the seed and it didn't, you know, so I, I knew that that kind of worked. So this year I'm going to go in here tomorrow and I'm going to frost seed this same area. So it's already basically prepped. But when I was in there a couple weeks ago, uh, I was doing some hinge cutting. It was heaved. So what I mean by heaved is, like I said earlier, is when you see that ground uh, popped up, even in like your yard, you know, the frost has is, is got the the soil and everything coming out of the ground basically and once it starts thawing out that you know that soil is going to kind of come back down flat and it's going to make for a good seed to soil cover up some of your seed and your clover should grow pretty well or if you want to do like a like an alfalfa or something or some sort of there's a couple seeds that I would do with clover alfalfa and a couple more but clover is the one I'm really going to to uh focus on because it will put nitrogen back in the ground and it will help your soil as well so that's what i'm going to do i'm going to go in there and just uh just spread it all out and just kind of let see what happens and i'm excited to do it and it and it's really relatively low cost because and low maintenance just because you go in there with a with a backpack spreader or something like that spread it out and then just kind of let nature do its course and the good thing is too is I've opened up the canopy a ton in there, so there's going to be good sunlight and, you know, there's no snow on the ground anymore. So it is still frozen, but I, I think, you know, in the next couple of weeks or months, it's going to really start thawing out and, and get some good seed to soil. Hopefully I got some good green coming up here for the turkeys. Yeah, that's, that's obviously one of the huge benefits to, to getting the stuff on the ground right now and is get those turkeys. And, uh, you know, they eat the, they eat the clover, as we all know, but all the bugs that live in that clover you know they're in there picking those out too grasshoppers and worms and you know whatever else is in there but um i guess the overall premise behind frost seeding is to put the seed on the ground while it's still frozen so that when it thaws out the moisture is there to germinate the seed because that if if the soil's thawed out and releases the moisture that means the temperature the soil temperature is up enough to actually trigger that germination as well so it's you know the ground's hard enough to get out there and cover the ground whether you want to walk it or like you said, put a broadcast seeder on a four-wheeler or whatever, but um, it's just a really good really good way to get a lot of seed on the ground at the right time of year. And um, you, you, you mentioned clover, and clover is a perennial, so you can put it out once and it will continue to come back year after year, but obviously the more you do it, the thicker that's, that's going to be. And if it's a food plot, obviously that's, that's your end goal is to get it as thick and lush as possible. And clover does really well in the shade too. Um, it doesn't need direct sunlight. So if you're in the timber or if it's like a micro plot or something like that, or just a little kill plot, you want to hunt over, you know, get in there and, and don't be afraid to get in there and, and get it on the ground. Yeah, for sure. And that's kind of frosting in a nutshell. I mean, there's always, uh, what they call like snow seeding where you can put it right on the snow and everything and frosting. You can do that as well. If there's snow on the ground, you can still frost seed, but, yeah. uh, you can, I, I personally like to wait for the snow to be gone just because it's in my head, I know that I'm getting for sure good seed-to-soil contact right away, and I'm just waiting for that thaw to happen. So that's basically everything in a nutshell. I mean, that's all I got. I don't know if you have anything else on this. I mean, we could spend another half hour in frost seeding and control of burns, but you know, yeah. we are at 26 minutes, and I kind of want to shut her down here. Yeah, the only thing I would add before we shut it down is that you know don't confuse 
the benefits of burning with the benefits of frost seeding. Like you're not going to get that soil temperature up to what you want by burning just so you can frost seed. Like don't, don't do one just to get the other because it doesn't work like that. It's that, that, that burn is only going to, you know, heat up the surface very minimally. You know, you're not killing all the vegetation that's waiting to germinate. It, it still comes back. So, I mean, that alone tells you that there's still viable seed under there that hasn't germinated, and it's because the temperature's not up yet. So, you know, don't don't use the burn to, to trigger a reason to frost seed, I guess is what I'm trying to get at. Yeah, I mean, good point. Great point. And I wasn't even thinking about that. I'm glad you brought that up. So, cool. Let's wrap it up and... Like every week, everybody, you know, if, if you guys are in the market for ABB, America's Best Bowstrings, go over to their website, order them up, customize them, order them up, and uh, type in Fall Podcast at checkout for $10 off your orders, $99 and over. So do that. We'd really appreciate it. And with that note, thank you for listening. <laughs>